Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee and this is SITREP. SITREP, your defence and foreign affairs magazine. In the next 60 minutes, has General Dennett blown it by signing up for the Tories? Did the BBC doctor a tape on A Company, Four Rifles? Why it's taken so long for President Obama to tell us what's next in Afghanistan? And has General Petraeus been downgraded? And spies are us. But is intelligence all it's cracked up to be? Here in the studio from University College London, Defence and Foreign Affairs Analyst Dr Martin McCauley from Global Radio News, the Political and International Affairs Correspondent Christopher Walker. As we've been hearing all week, it's open warfare between the Army and Downing Street. Yes, I did, says the General. Oh, no, you didn't, says number 10. And before we look behind the headli- before the headlines, here's a round-up from SITREP's Jamie Gordon. During his time as CGS, General Sir Richard Dannett has not shied away from taking on his political masters in public, and the latest spat shows he's unlikely to fade away into the Tower of London, for which he's now responsible. In an interview with the Sun newspaper this week, his suggestion that the Prime Minister Gordon Brown ignored a plea for 2,000 more troops to be sent to Afghanistan has caused considerable fallout. He said the situation had left the army fighting with at least part of one arm behind its back. The Shadow Defence Secretary Liam Fox was quick to pounce on the story, saying that, if true, the Prime Minister was perilously close to misleading Parliament and the country. The Prime Minister told us that he was not asked for extra troops by his military commanders. In fact, he went further in the House of Commons and told us that military commanders were satisfied that they had the numbers they needed. If it turns out that the that General Dannett, the other military commanders, asked the Prime Minister for extra numbers and he turned them down, then the Prime Minister has been well, misleading us. Former British commander in Afghanistan, Colonel Richard Kemp, appeared to throw some mud back at General Dannett. Although he agreed that more troops were necessary, he said it was for the politicians to interpret military advice. Senior military officers have a major role to play in this, and I think they must take some responsibility themselves. If the government's not making the right decisions, I think senior military officers must shoulder some of the burden of that. But later on Tuesday, General Dannett talked to the media, and he reiterated his case. If your judgment is that you need ten of something, and you're allowed to have nine, then you've got part of one arm tied behind your back. I mean, I think one wasn't being any... If I'd said one arm tied behind your back, that would be... A, but it was just... There were limitations. And, OK, I can understand why there might be limitations. But if the limitation is not coming from the military and the military wants to need, knows how it needs to do the job, um, then that's really how it should be. The Secretary of State for Defence, Bob Ainsworth, put a slightly different spin on the argument, saying Britain was part of a coalition and more troops didn't necessarily mean a further UK commitment. When we're thinking about troop numbers, and, uh, you know, I've heard lots of... Uh, generals saying they are absolutely right that we need more boots on the ground but they don't necessarily have to be uh, British. The Armed Forces Minister Bill Rammel also got involved and perhaps gave one of the most telling quotes saying the day you have service chiefs and defence ministers arguing in public is the day you have real problems with the military. This is Jamie Gordon reporting for Citrep. Jamie, thank you very much indeed. Um, as I said, from uh, University College London, um, Dr. Martin McCauley from Global Radio News, Christopher Walker, and from the London think tank Chatham House, Dr. Claire Spencer. Claire, um, this whole thing with General Dannett, we'll go into the sort of, you know, has he joined up and signed up and what his credibility is. It has been daft, isn't it? Well, I'm intrigued to know about the timing. I haven't looked into how, in fact, this came out, but was it the fact that there was going to be a leak that made the timing quite so unfortunate? 
um, certainly taking place during the, the Tories' conference. You know, it's the sort of thing, he's still a serving officer, I believe, till November. So why is did he, they even not... Even though he left in August? Well, I thought he was still... Uh, this is a report I heard. He was still on the payroll to... Still November. on the payroll of the Ministry of Defence. Yeah. Right. Oh, right. Okay. okay. Yeah. Chris Walker. Him. Well, I think we Dark. know how it, how it came out was, uh, he, you know, he's exhibited the ability that now everybody has to shoot themselves in the foot by he revealed it to Radio 5 Live, the sports programme. Yeah. What's it, what, what, tell me, tell me, tell me. What is a general doing on Radio 5? Well, it is re- rolling news. So they take anybody, basically, and he turned up. Yeah. He well, gave no, he's an his new job, his new job at the Tower of London as, uh, mm. as the constable in charge of the, the Tower of London. And somebody asked him a yeah, speculative question, would you, yeah. if invited, take a political role such as in yeah. the House of Lords? And he said yes, but it's hypothetical. And, Martin. and it was supposed to be announced uh, uh, at the Tory party conference as a grand gesture. Yes. And of course, it fell flat. And uh, the Shadow Home Secretary got the... Uh, they're absolutely mixed up. He thought that Dennis had been appointed by the hmm. Labour government. In other words, the Tories looked up, not with egg in their face, but egg from top to bottom. <laughs> right. Now, listen, what is going on? I mean, quite frankly, is it, is it all daft or is there something more going on? The defence editor of the Times newspaper is Michael Evans, and Michael Evans knows. Michael, um, we, let's go back. Let's forget this, this week. Let's go back. Uh, when we have General Dannett saying that, that he asked for 2,000 uh, more, more troops and the Prime Minister said no. Either the General misremembers, and he must have a note of what he asked for, or Number 10 does misremember. Is someone t- telling porkies here? Michael. Hello, Michael Evans. Right. We've lost Michael Evans. Right, tell me, Christopher Walker, you answer the question. You know more than anybody else. Um, you say, is somebody telling porkies? Well, they've got to be. I mean, you've just explained why they have to be, because they both say exactly opposite things about the same meeting. What's intriguing is they say a civil <laughs> servant took a note of the meeting, but as yet we haven't seen it, but I'm sure by the weekend press somebody will dig it out. Yes. And then we'll see who's telling the porkies. I mean, the, the other part of this, and I, I, mean, I hope we get Michael Evans up in a, in a moment, but the whole point of it, the Prime Minister, Martin, I mean, he just doesn't sort of sit there and say, oh, I wonder what I think of this. He gets advice, doesn't he? Yes, he gets advice, and uh, possibly he did ask for 2,000 troops, but presumably that was in a, a discussion with the Prime Minister, with the uh, Defence Secretary and so on and so forth. And as uh, somebody else said, it's then up to the PM to decide. Uh, he will then get advice from the civil service and so on, and they will say, we don't want any more troops, we can't afford them. The military say, yes, we do want more troops, and it's up to the PM to decide. Right. Now, I think Michael Evans, the uh, defence editor of the Times, he's n- is now on the line. Michael, um, do you happen to know whether the general misremembers what happened when he asked for 2,000 troops, or number 10 misremembers? The, um, well, the facts of the case are quite simple, actually. Uh, there were four options presented by, not by General Dannett, but by the Ministry of Defence, and that means signed up to and approved by the Secretary of State for Defence, who was then John Hutton, mm-hmm. uh, the Chief of the Defence Staff, and the, and the three service chiefs, including Dannett. They all agreed that there should be more troops, but they gave four options, because that's the way Whitehall works. One of the options was uh, send a battalion to, uh, on a short-term basis to cover the election. But the one which was, as it turned out, was option D, was to send up to 2,000. Actually, I think they agreed it was going to be 1,800, but up to 2,000 troops because that's what we need. And next to it was, this is our recommended and preferred option. In other words, the MEDs 
recommendation to Downing Street was we need to send 2,000 more troops. But by the way, there are a few other options around, but this is our advice to you is to go for this one. And Gordon Brown went for one of the other options, which was to send 700 troops to cover the uh, elections. But a Prime Minister doesn't unilaterally say no. Somebody is telling him, on balance, Prime Minister, I think option four is not on. Option one with the 700 is about right. I'm sure he was given other advice. The Treasury was probably leading the field in that case. Um, and was saying, if you send 2,000, it'll cost X number. If you send, seven, if you sell, uh, send 700 for four months, it'll cost, it'll cost considerably cheaper. Um, I have spoken to all the people on the military side and on the political side from the MOD who were involved in this decision, and they all said that uh, Gordon Brown went for the cheaper option. Right. And so, you see, what a lot of people, it will puzzle them. Um, you're fighting a war. You've got 2,000 troops somewhere. After all, you don't ask for 2,000 unless you actually know they're, they're there somewhere. How is it that a general who's, who's in charge of the war can't say, right, we need 2,000 more, so we'll send them? Why does it have to be the Prime Minister or the Treasury that says so? Because the cost uh, comes out of the Treasury contingency reserves and not out of the MOD budget. Uh, so they have to get permission from the Treasury to do it, and before they can get permission from the Treasury to do it, they need to get the Prime Minister's approval as well. It all, that's the way it works. Um, they, they're not allowed just to, to send off troops willy-nilly. They have to get uh, Cabinet approval, and uh, if the Treasury uh, balks at the thought of spending a lot more money, then uh, the Prime Minister, probably because he's the next Chancellor, uh, tends to, side on the, uh, to go on the side of the Treasury. Right. And so uh, General Dannett then went off and he was starting to tell anybody who would listen almost, I mean, um, what the problem was. How is it that Number 10 and the, dis- the Defence Secretary's Office can't keep a general off the air? Why can't they keep them in, in, in line? Well, of course, this is, <laughs> this is one thing which um, the government uh, doesn't have a complete hold over. They can't actually prevent a general or an admiral or an air chief marshal from going on, I mean, on television or radio and, or, or making a speech uh, and putting, putting his, his case. Uh, except that there is a protocol in Whitehall, which is that uh, the Defence Secretary of the time will say to his service chiefs, um, I'm quite happy for you to go make your case in public, but remember, we're all part of the same team uh, and you don't want to disrupt, you know, to, to cause problems for the government because our whole purpose is to is to do things in a sort of unified fashion. So all service chiefs have generally signed up to that, but General Dannett uh, decided to uh, to go above the parapet and uh, make uh, considerably more noise than any of his predecessors. Right. In your, what, must be 25 years or so, 30, covering defence in these matters, yes. can you remember such open and very public warfare between the army and Whitehall? I don't think I can. I, I can remember um, certainly former heads of the army and former chiefs of defence staff uh, striding down Whitehall and knocking on number 10, as is their right, uh, to have access. And that is the protocol, there. isn't it? Uh, but that is part of the protocol. In fact, sometimes they don't stride down Whitehall, they stride down the tunnels under Whitehall to get to number 10 because there's a back entrance. Um, so I can't recall an occasion uh, when someone like Dannett has spoken up so forcefully in public Pre- predecessors, people, other people, other people. I mean, General Guthrie, for instance, was mm. 
was never slow in, uh, in, in making his case. But I can't recall him ever standing up on a, on a soapbox and saying, uh, the government are rejecting my advice, and this is outrageous. Um, so I think Thanet is in, a, uh, is in a minority of one here. Just a final quick point, Michael. Uh, General Dannett has signed up for the Tories now. Um, does that devalue everything he's got to say now because it will be so easily knocked down as a political point? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't devalue what he said because he will continue to say what he's always said. So he's not going to change his tune just because he's signed up to the Tories. Nevertheless, it will give his enemies... That's probably too strong a word, but there are, there are people who don't like... Certainly his critics. General Dan, and his critics anyway. It will give them uh, ammunition, shall we say, to say, well, we don't need to listen to him anymore because he's just uh, part of the Tories. I'm talking about the Labour ministers here, obviously. Yeah. Um, so I think it's uh, devalue in that sense. Politically, in the, in the nasty political world, he's taken a bit of a gamble, in my personal view, the wrong one, uh, and he's tied his flag to the mask, and uh, people will say, well, you know, you're just a Tory now, uh, General Danner, we don't need to listen to you anymore. Right. Michael Evans, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> Christopher Walker, um, I don't know. This is a sort of a slugfest of political cage fighters. I don't know who writes this stuff. Political yeah. cage fighters, isn't it, in, in Whitehall? It is daft. That's the whole point. It is daft. The way. It, why didn't, for example, General Danner sort of keep quiet for about a year? And then when they won the election, I mean, won the election, these guys, then he'd say, yeah. oh, yes, I wouldn't mind being Baron Dannett of somewhere. And well, I'll he's join used up like to being a general. He's not used to being a politician. I mean, he's put his foot in it. And you can see today from the Daily Mirror now, which is slugging it out with the sun. According to the sun, this was a military coup where they, you know, everybody's won. According to the Mirror in huge headlines, he's a stooge for the Tories. And that's how it'll go on being argued What's now. it sound like in the think tank? Well, I, I think it, it sounds like we're still in silly season. I mean, there's there's a lot of hyperbole. I've been watching, and I'm afraid to say I include the BBC in this, uh, the coverage of the party political conferences, and they're constantly trying to eke out something to outspin the politicians. Mm-hmm. The coverage is all about, oh, so you've tripped up now, have you, Minister? Mm-hmm. Or you, didn't, you haven't worked out the sums, Mr Osborne, or you haven't done this, that and the other, and you didn't mention this in your speech. So they're constantly trying to trip the politicians up. And I just see this as an extension of the whole thing. I think when the dust settles... You know, this is the kind of debate we should be having nationally about what purpose are armed forces serving in Afghanistan. Why are we putting up with such a large death toll without a clear strategy in which our forces are engaged? And I think this is all a, you know, General Dannett, in fairness, is trying to protect uh, under-resourced men. And I, I buy into those arguments. Now, how he's done it could be open to criticism. But I do think it's, it's a way of saying there is no public debate on this issue worth its name. And I think that's what we need to get out of this. Martin. I, I think that uh, John Dunn's obviously feels very, very strongly about this issue, and that would be one of my reasons for his going public in this way. Uh, he also showed a lack of political awareness and so on, but if he sticks to purely technical arguments, uh, technical military arguments about Afghanistan, he's on very strong ground. Uh, he shouldn't then say, well, the government should do A, B, and C. He should actually state the situation, which is drastic. Mm. The, the military... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there's a report today in the Times of the US military, they're demoralised they don't know why they're there, what is the mission here? Now, Dannett is a person who can say, right, the mission is A, B and C uh, or the mission we were told is A, B and C, mm-hmm. because Ooh. what we're getting now is, is perhaps new mission, not mission creep, but a new style. It's interesting that the new CGS, uh, General Sir David Richards I mean, Michael Evans was saying, you know, it's up to 
up to generals what they do. There's a, there's a there's a blanket over his head at the moment. Don't go on television. Don't go on radio. Don't give interviews. You may be the chief of the general staff, but not until we've got the whole thing controlled. This is a daft week to speak up. Yes, and the, and the, the, the difficulty for the Labour Party and Labour ministers is everyone sees them as serving out their time. That they'll only be there for another six months, eight months, and therefore, in many ways, it doesn't really matter what they say, you're looking to the next government, and this is the worst possible scenario for a military fighting in Afghanistan. Yeah, I was at a meeting last night with Af- Af- the Afghan development uh, people, mm-hmm. and in fact, the CGS, um, uh, General Richards, was there, and he was answering questions, and he was very calm, and he was very quiet, and, you know, this man is uh, as close to any, any soldier is allowed to get to being cerebral. Um, and that's the sort of guy that they perhaps they want. And listen, the reason that we were talking about it, eight years ago yesterday, 7th mm-hmm. of October 2001, mm-hmm. when the Afghanistan war started. Um, I don't know if it's, uh, if, if it's right, but General Richard said last night, we want more boots on the ground, we're going to get more boots on the ground, perhaps, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to go off to a, up to 1,000. I quote, we can start winning the psychological battle that's going to be very, very difficult to do because if you look at eight years ago, the Taliban was, were, were treated uh, and looked at as people in pyjamas, little boys, little men running around in pyjamas, firing guns oh. and so on. And now they're a very formidable force. Somebody has to analyse why that has happened, who's trained mm. them and oh. what the future is. OK, listen, I want to go to Washington now, Washington, D.C., and the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. Um, Dr. Karen von Hippel's there. Um, Karen, we're all waiting for President Obama... Uh, um, to come up with the new strategy, whether General McChrystal is going to get his 40,000 troops or even just 10,000 troops. Why is it taking the White House so long to decide strategy in Afghanistan? Well, that's a a good question, and I think a lot of people are asking that question now. Um, I think the answer is really that he needs to be uh, seen as considering all sides of the debate before he makes a decision. I think he's very aware we went into Iraq with very little public debate um, and a lot of bullying going on, really, by members of the U.S. administration um, with inside, inside the government and abroad. And he really does want to consider all the options. U.S. public support has been going down um, steadily over the last few months, and so he really wants to make sure that he can explain the sacrifice that will uh, be involved to the American public. So he... he and he's a considered man. He really is uh, trying to understand what's the best for the United States, what's the best for Afghanistan, what's the best for the international community. So I do think we're not going to wait that much longer. It may be two more weeks. Uh, but at that stage, he will explain in, in pretty good detail what, what's about to happen. It was interesting. I heard the White House uh, Chief of Staff, uh, Rahm Emanuel, and he was talking about Afghanistan war as a war that's been neglected for eight years. That's a, it's quite a powerful thing to have said. Yeah, well, I, I don't think anybody's under the illusion um, that things uh, have been going very badly there and that we dropped the ball for, you know, four or five years at least. Now, it's not, not just the United States. It's the entire international community. But, of course, people have been looking to the U.S. for leadership in Afghanistan because we have the largest footprint there. So uh, I think that we do need to make some really enormous changes I don't think it's a simple debate between counterterrorism versus counterinsurgency. You can do both, and both of those terms can involve, uh, you know, a heavy footprint and a light footprint. And 
the, the situation on the ground is very complicated. You, you need to do different things in the north and the west and the center than maybe what you need to do in the south and the east. And so there are a lot of options that are being considered. It's just not just sending boots, is it? Right. 40,000 boots. Uh, yeah. Congress, is that, uh, is that in, as one on Afghanistan? No, not at all. They're deeply divided. Um, and he is very concerned, Obama is very concerned that many from his own party are, are against the war. Some on the Hill are even talking about um, introducing a bill to block additional troops. Um, so he does, he's very worried about U.S. public opinion. He's worried about support from the Hill. He's worried about divisions within his own administration about, about where we need to go, as well as, of course, what the Allies are thinking and doing and what they might do, depending on the decision he takes. Tell me, is General Petraeus, um, he is pretty low profile at the moment. Is he, is he not the voice that once he was, not the hero as once he was? At one time he was, he was all over the media, etc. Yeah, no, I think, you know, people still have a lot of respect for him. I think people have a lot of respect for McChrystal, who is Obama's man. And I think these articles in the media we've been seeing about this, you know, McChrystal speaking out of turn... They're being overblown. I really think that there's a very good relationship between Obama, McChrystal, Petraeus, Gates. The whole team, I think, is just they're having an adult conversation about where to go. Petraeus obviously supports McChrystal. He put him in. That's his man. Um, And uh, so, you know, I don't think that, I mean, you know, Holbrook's been rather quiet as well during this debate. So it's really... Which is unusual. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, um, Karen, the final thought uh, when do when do we actually uh, reckon on getting the new plan? So I, I think within a few weeks. Now, some of it, of course, is contingent on um, the elections and the outcome of the elections in Afghanistan. We still don't know if there's going to be a runoff. The, the recount process is quite complicated, but they've come up with a formula so they don't have to count all the disputed ballots, but they can count a small percentage and then uh, make assumptions about what would have happened in the rest of the country. That should be completed probably by the end of next week, so that if there is a runoff, it'll happen before the middle of November, before winter sets in. Um, I think, you know, the outcome of the election is also relevant, because are we going to be working with a government that's considered corrupt and illegitimate, maybe by its own people, or are we going to, uh, you know, try to see what the second round might offer? So, there, you know, there's still some unknowns there. Right, Karen von Hippel, thank you very much indeed. So I was, do you see anybody see the BBC survey, the poll, yeah. uh, suggesting um, that 56% of the British, anyway, were opposed to the war in Afghanistan, 37% in favour. Um, and I actually thought that was quite remarkable because three years ago, 53% of those polled, polled were opposed. It hasn't changed that much, has it? Well, uh, not Chris considering Walker. the number of casualties mm. that have been between. So it shows that casualties are not the only reason. And I think one reason it hasn't is that the the way that some of these, you know, receptions have come to the dead in their coffins and something have raised the profile of our troops there. And there's more people, people respecting what, yeah. what they're doing and also disliking mm. the people who don't want them to be there, like those, you know, Muslim crowd that gathered and shouted obscenities and such like about it. There was another point um, um, uh, 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 that I thought was very odd, clear. Um, 37% of people were in favour. Now, Mm. in fact, that's up 6% of what the same survey found three years ago. Now, allowing for the fact that survey figures go wonky, 
Um, I, do, do you find that remarkable? <clears throat> Well, I find it interesting. I mean, it's still a majority who are opposed, though, in in both of these polls, it should be noted. But I I think possibly there's an element of how can you face the families of those who've died unless you can get out and do something uh, before you get out that leaves a mark and makes a difference. And I think there's a sense that uh, you have to carry on and claim some kind of victory out of this in order to vindicate the deaths of those who've sacrificed themselves and have been, and even more, who've been wounded um, to justify it. So, you know, I mean, the temptation to say, look, we're obviously going nowhere, let's get out tomorrow, is there. But I think you have to think in terms of, well, what are we going to say to the families and to those who survived? Okay. All this is, um, I suppose, very much in today's agenda at the Conservative Party conference in, in, in Manchester. Incidentally, the only city in Britain, according to Lord <laughs> London uh, uh, Mayor not Lord Boris... Yet. Not, <laughs> your, not Lord yet. Not Lord Mayor yet. Uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson. Oh, Lord. The only city he reckons that he hasn't been rude about. Uh, Ned Temko, who is never rude about anybody or any city from the Observer newspaper, is on the line from the conference. Um, uh, Ned, we've had <clears throat> a lot, haven't we, in the past 24 hours from, from the Tories on defense. Uh, yeah, and uh, not all of it about Afghanistan. Uh, predictably, Liam Fox basically pointed today towards uh, cutting back uh, in every aspect of the MOD except front line. By and, 25% he was saying, wasn't he? Yeah, and, and uh, my guess is when he gets there, uh, he'll find the numbers don't add up perfectly as they all do. But I think the direction of travel will be uh, tell the civil service to cut uh, down on the civilian staff of the MOD, which is quite large, uh, and make uh, the priority getting more helicopters, the right kind of armor, the right kind of protective gear uh, out to Afghanistan. We also have um, this idea of uh, an extension of homeland security, where there will be a rapid reaction force, a tri-service rapid reaction force, according to the shadow uh, Security Minister Pauline Neville Jones. Um, some like two thousand people from all services. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the details are set in stone yet, but this is again an idea that it has attracted the Tories for some time. It's on the American model of homeland security, and uh, it it basically gives uh, ballast and uh, weight to Cobra, which is of course the ministerial committee that meets whenever things go wrong from putting to. Uh, Seven seven, and um, and I think uh, it's all part of the the overriding theme of this conference, and that is uh, uh, to be uh, to be as cuddly as possible on domestic issues, but to also to be tough on security. And uh, that one of the 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 longest, I think, probably the longest ovation during David Cameron's speech today was a tribute to the people serving on the front lines in Afghanistan. Can you can you remember when defence per se um, had such a high profile? I mean, presumably you've got to go back almost to 1982 in the Falklands War because it certainly didn't at a party conference have this sort of profile uh, after the uh, two Iraq wars. No, and I think it's it's both genuinely meant, but also a way of uh, scoring political points against the government uh, who are perceived or, or who are being portrayed, particularly by Richard Dennett, uh, soon to be a conservative minister, it appears. Uh, if they win the election, that is. Yes, uh, as, uh, as insufficiently 
uh, supportive of the troops in the field. Um, Ned, where do we go from here with all these promises and all these uh, ideas? Uh, presumably, we have to wait for the the uh, forecast of the next budget, the spring budget, which we get in, what, November. Then we'll get an idea of what the Treasury have to say about all this, because as, a, as we heard earlier about the whole idea that Dan wanted 2,000, it's the Treasury that eventually has the biggest say. Yeah, although I think on issues like that, if it were just uh, a, a Treasury re- reluctant, uh, Downing Street, which is really in control of this issue, would have would the truth. I think there's a broader issue here, and that is all three parties, the Dems, Tories, and Labor, um, are kind of at a loss because, um, not least because President Obama still hasn't decided the way forward, uh, in forging a kind of coherent strategy for the future in Afghanistan. Everybody seems on board with the fact that you can't possibly risk losing this. No one's in favor of an early withdrawal. But that what's in the air is a sense of maybe a mission change, uh, the notion that rather than uh, fighting uh, ground uh, battles against the Taliban, uh, that much, much more emphasis has to be placed on the end game, the end game being somehow finding a way of devolving or, or training Afghan army and police units sufficiently uh, so that the mission of the uh, the allied forces there can change. And I think that's the direction everybody seems to be heading now. Okay. Uh, Ned Temko, thank you very much. Claire, just a final thought. This war has been going on for eight years. Hmm. And sometimes people say, well, you haven't got it right yet. But, you know, things change in eight years. Circumstances change. There's nothing wrong in changing your strategy. Yes. Well, I mean, the, the, the nature of the war, if, if that's what we're going to call it, has changed because it started off as let's get rid of the Taliban. There was intensive fighting to do that, which was successful. Then it became a peace support mission. Then it became a development support mission. And it's only over the last three years gone back to being a, a war mission. Right. It's just coming up to half past the hour. You're listening to SITREP, your Defence and Foreign Affairs magazine. Don't forget, you can listen again to SITREP whenever you want, or podcast by going to bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. Now, part two, it's time for Thinking thinking Aloud. SITREP's roundtable, sometimes sideways look at the world, with me, Christopher Lee, and still with us, Dr Claire Spencer from Chatham House, Chris Walker from Global Radio News, and from University College London, Dr Martin McCauley. Um... There was just one other sort of, I don't know, perhaps it, it, it doesn't make much sense, though, uh, Christopher. The new head of Pakistan's Taliban, Hakimullah um, Masood, has been meeting with a ch- group of chosen reporters just to show that rumours of his death in August were indeed exaggerated after a, a, an American missile strike. I want to talk, just this idea that um, sometimes... We get it wrong, don't we? Uh, we? We get it totally wrong in the journal. I mean, the idea that the Taliban and sort of a lot of sort of um, you know, old people who don't have any dealings with the modern world and the press is totally wrong. They're much. They, I think they're probably dealing better with the press now. You keep hearing the BBC guy in Kabul saying, "Oh, we were on the phone to the Taliban guy this morning. He called us. He came this." And then there was a story yesterday where where the eight uh, American soldiers were killed. Uh, the other day, the Taliban immediately have, uh, you know, got their own flag up 
and got a picture over it. So it's, are we Jima the other way round? I mean, they are brilliant publicists. And the days they wouldn't even let canaries sing in uh, cages and such like are over, just as Martin said, that the image has changed. They're, they're up there in the 21st century. Yeah, and we're not. And, and this is not in fully, fully, it's never been fully researched, perhaps it has been done but not released, but I, I don't read. I'm looking for analyses uh, of the Taliban in Pakistan, which apparently is separate from the Taliban in Afghanistan. How sophisticated, how have they become so sophisticated? Who's behind it? Who's training them? Uh, where's the money coming from? Oh. What they, they say, everyone of them says, we're in it for the long term uh, and we'll outlast you. You haven't got the willpower to stay. Okay, let's go to Afghanistan. Uh, let's go to the Times correspondent Martin Fletcher. Um, Martin, just back from uh, Tangy Valley. Not been a happy hunting ground for the United States, has it? No, it's one of the most dangerous places in America. And actually, we had a very illustrative trip there. We were we were with a bunch of um, bomb searchers, roadside bomb searchers, escorting a convoy <coughs> in and out. It was a sixty-kilometer round trip. And it took us 12 hours, which goes to show how much manpower, how many resources you need just to enter one valley in one province in the whole of Afghanistan. Hmm. Tell me, the, um, spending time with guys on the ground, do, do all these Washington-London discussions and speculations on strategy and numbers make any any difference to the troops or are they so preoccupied with what they've got to do just literally just to stay alive the ordinary soldier has not the faintest idea what's going on in washington he has no access to news occasionally he gets the stars and stripes if he's lucky i'm talking about you know the ones outside the main you know outside background and one or two other main bases but i think there is a sense of drift they say they don't know quite why they're there, what their mission is. It's not like a war where you, they're told to capture a hill or attack this place or that place. They, they, there's a sense of purposelessness, which I think they find quite demoralizing. I mean, when, you, when we talk about equipment and numbers, do the fellows on the ground actually say what they need, what they think they need? No. I mean, the commanders do. The commanding officers do. Except they all say they need more troops. Let me give you another example. We, we went last week to watch the, uh, the Americans clear out one village of the Taliban. It was meant to be a quick in-and-out operation. There were about you know, over 100 times. We aren't allowed to give you precise numbers, but it was over 100 American men backed by considerable firepower. They went in. They ended up fighting clear this village for two whole days. They brought in Apache helicopters, F-15 fighters, a B-1 bomber. They pounded Taliban positions in the village and on the mountainside around with heavy artillery, mortars, machine gun fire. And at the end of two days, it actually, I mean, it's like watching uh, a spectacular finale of the fireworks show, which ended with a, a, the B-1 dropping this, this JDAM bomb. And then suddenly there was silence. It was over, and the Americans retreated. And as they retreated, suddenly two mortars came from the mountainside and sort of shot over the village to where the Americans had set up base the other side. And it was just the Taliban putting up two fingers at the Americans, saying, we're still here. I mean, this is the trouble. With the American military is a wonderful machine full of wonderful people filled with a sense of duty. 
but it's a hammer trying to kill a fly. The, the Taliban just blend in. It's like fighting ghosts. You know, they're part of the fabric of that of, of the place. They they know they know the people. They know where to hide. They know the mountains inside out. There's no way that a conventional military campaign is going to beat them. And you know, and and the point of that story was you know, again, it's like Dangi Valley. It's one village in one province in the whole of Afghanistan, and they threw all those resources to it. But the whole operation must have cost well over a million dollars, given the amount of ordnance that was used. And it didn't succeed. The Americans eventually left, so I'm pretty sure that the Taliban will be back in that village by now. Martin, Martin Fletcher <coughs> of the Times, thank you very much indeed. Well, there we have it, Claire. Uh, it is, people listening to that will say, is that just the Americans, or is there's a lot of it like that? Well, I was sitting listening to that, uh, the image of fighting ghosts suddenly made me think all these analogies with Vietnam are actually coming back to haunt them. I mean, if they can't, if it takes two days to subdue a village, which in the end isn't going to be subduable, and then they can't hold it. I mean, what hope? You know, if that's one village, what hope? A whole province. And um, then two mortar incomers to say, screw you. Yeah, exactly. We're still, we're still here and we're coming back. I mean, they are so mobile these Taliban, that it's true. If you if you haven't hit them the first time round, they're not there the second time round. They creep off somewhere else and come back. I mean, I, I just... Militarily, it seems to me, is this is proof it cannot be won by force alone. Right. Martin? Yes. Uh, Martin Fletcher said something very interesting. He said that the Taliban uh, drift away, they blend, they vanish, and so on. But they are Pashtuns. And what the NATO was trying to do is try and train an Afghan army and police who will be predominantly Pashtun. So therefore the Taliban are Pashtun, predominantly Pashtun, and the new Afghan army and police are and they are interrelated. Everybody in, I presume everybody in the new Afghan army has relatives uh, in some place. And President Karzai who, is a who, Pashtun. Yes, <laughs> he's a Pashtun. And and he's got relatives all over the so place. The and and they've got relatives yeah. who are members of the Taliban because, as one Afghan said to me, every male Afghan is a Taliban, or is Talib, uh, a student. Uh, he's there to defend the country, and it's not, he wants to get rid of foreigners and so on, and it's not ideological, it's not religious, he just wants to be rid of them. And therefore you can't distinguish, you can't draw a line between the army, the police, and the Taliban, because they're basically all the same people. Do you know, uh, let's, let's go back to something you just slipped in there. Um, Taliban students. Mm. Mm. Tell us, I can't remember, Kandahar, Yes. How did it all begin, the, the Taliban? It wasn't just to get rid of the Soviet, the then Soviet forces after 79, was it? It began as the, the Americans took the view that promoting... Islam sure, I should have said Taliban means mm. students. Yeah, Taliban mm. means yes. students, is in the Madrasa. plural, Talib, Taliban, mm. uh, meaning mm. students. Uh, and every Afghan will tell you that everyone, every male is a Talib. A student. A, a student. Uh, he's a student of Islam, he's also a student of his own country, and he wants to defend his country and so on. But if you go back to uh, the Soviet invasion of 1979, the West thought, the Americans thought, that the greater evil was Soviet communism. Uh, many analysts at that time said Soviet communism is dying on its legs. Uh, it's, it's almost phased out. But it was perceived to be aggressive, it was perceived to be expanding. So therefore, you then back uh, a force which can counter it which became the Mujahideen, or the fighters for uh, freedom and so on. 
Uh, and then when the Soviets left, you had all these people who were there, and Osama bin Laden and the Afghans, all those who wanted to engage in a fight with the West were left there, and the Americans walked away, and they and from a military point of view, they didn't think about the political consequence of doing that. They just, well, they're just peasants. And they're, and they're just students. Yeah, but they just also students. went all over the Middle East. I mean, they didn't do the harm there that they're still <clears> doing. They, they then spread out and formed the backbone of the so-called terrorists. Or, you know, many places in the Middle East were hardened. They were known as Afghanis. They'd done their training there. They were Egyptians. They were Syrians. They were, they'd done their training. They'd fought the war. They'd been taught, and particularly how to use these missiles. Yes, yes, missiles. yes there is the argument that the jihad, the jihadi, mm. those who engage in jihad, are motivated really by uh, the, the primary motivation is defending their own country, uh, and they see it oppressed by outsiders, perhaps the West. The world is changing now because, for instance, in Algeria, they're turning their eye on the Chinese. Mm-hmm. They're targeting Chinese whom they see <clears throat> as coming in and playing the same role as American imperialists yeah. in the past. You're now getting this concept that the Chinese are imperialists and so on. So therefore, yeah. uh, it's not it's not racial or it's not targeted against a certain country. Chinese want to get into northern Afghanistan for all the goodies, like the uh, raw well, materials. Yes, and and gas, they got everything yeah. and so on. But also, uh, uh, China occupies part the eastern part of Kashmir, and uh, um, fundamentalists get into Xinjiang through Afghanistan, receive training in Afghanistan and into uh, Xinjiang. So the Chinese are involved. But it's very interesting to see the Chinese now are considering having bases, having military bases outside China really for the first time because of the perceived military threat to oil and gas and everything else. Right. Let's get on to the real, real stuff, eh? Juicy stuff. <laughs> it's juicy stuff from the official history of MI5, um, the security service that was being published this week. Files on Harold Wilson when he was Prime Minister. Oh, yeah. He always said there was. <coughs> on the morning of 9-11, though, warnings that Al-Qaeda was planning something pretty big. Much of the book's intelligent stuff is about spying. And on the line now, who better? The author, Nigel West, of so many fiction and non-fiction books on intelligence. Indeed, his latest published just yesterday. Uh, Triplex, is it called? That's right, Triplex. Not to be mistaken for a... Like some sort of glass. Uh, <laughs> catalogue. <laughs> right. Listen, you're in the Black Sea. That is... <laughs> now, I know we're taking this call from you in the Black Sea. Now, that is very cloak and dagger, Nigel West, I have to say. What are you doing there? I'm in Odessa, and I'm undertaking some very arduous research, uh, just a short distance from the sea. Oh, I see. I see. Well, as a member of the squadron, you should be. <laughs> now, listen, <laughs> uh, many people are sceptical about the, uh, the, I suppose, the non-fiction uh, value of intelligence. I mean, maybe because it's the best-known subject that's least mm. understood. Is that about right? Uh, well, it's certainly misunderstood by the outside world. That's certainly true. There is also a slightly sceptical view that, that some cynics express that the intelligence community just feeds off itself and that really people can do without intelligence. But the fact is that if policymakers are not going to be taken by surprise constantly, and you don't have to look far back in our own history, just back to the Falklands or uh, North Korea or numerous other events where we've been taken by surprise and the result has been bloodshed. 
Mm-hmm. I was just thinking, I mean, thinking about Triple X, um, I mean, it's not a book pro- club program, <laughs> I tell you, everybody who's listening, but um, it's about, isn't it, the, the Cambridge Five, the, the spies at Cambridge that developed in people like uh, Philby, uh, etc. afterwards. Um, there's a sort of, these people sent others to their deaths, and yet there is a sort of romantic image still about them. But, yes, I, I mean, People are fascinated by the Cambridge Five, and what Triple X contains is the material from the KGB archives. So this is a, a completely different perspective. We're seeing, for the very first time, the actual material, the real MI5 and Secret Intelligence Service documents that ended up in Moscow. And they were declassified yesterday, incidentally, uh, in Moscow, not in London. These are documents that will never be seen in London and will never have been seen by, for instance, Chris Andrew, who's written the official history of MI5. Mm. um, A lot of these intelligence reputations or the reputation of intelligence itself was there when the the threat was easily identifiable in the United States, uh, the USSR being the prime example, I suppose, for the past hundred years. So was the, the greater effort cold war intelligence gathering that we would never know if it was right or not well i think we're in a good position now to judge about the cold war particularly with the release of previously classified documents uh, from all sides in the superpower confrontation but what i think is is more interesting is the way in which after really 1989 1990 there was a strong move so the so-called peace dividend do you remember that Mm. where people wanted to dismantle mi5 and sis and gchq and there were serious questions raised saying we spend a a billion dollars a billion pounds a year on intelligence Uh, what do we get for our money why don't we dismantle these people the men in raincoats have gone home to bulgaria yeah accepting that i suppose the military intelligence certainly i mean it shaped didn't it post-world war ii defense budgets Yes, and and rightly so. People looked at the Second World War at their experience. They wanted to invest in signals intelligence. They wanted to invest in technical sources of intelligence. And, of course, in the post-war era, we looked back at the Second World War to make those judgments. And the sources that were developed at that time can really be traced back to the Second World War. And it was in anticipation of what everybody believed was very likely to be a third world war. Tell me about the big intelligent successes and intelligent successes as far as you're concerned. Well, the big successes uh, include names that people have probably never heard of. I remember being told by a director of central intelligence that the CIA's rent had been paid, as he termed it, for 12 years by a man, a very obscure individual, Adam um, Adolf Tolkienhoff. Well, he was an avionics engineer that supplied all the details of um, Soviet aircraft systems to the Americans for 12 years. I mean, he completely neutralized the uh, Soviet um, air defense systems. So that was pretty remarkable. Uh, if you look at the Walker family, uh, John Walker and his uh, son and the other people that he recruited effectively neutralized for 15 years 
the whole of the American submarine-launched ballistic missile deterrent system. I mean, that's pretty good going by anybody's standards. The other thing, I just sort of final thought on this, um, we, we talk about in, in intelligence agents, and we give them the loose term spies because it sounds good. Um, a lot of them are amateurs. We, we collect intelligence. There's other people who spy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. Yes, of course. Yeah, this, this is Nigel West. This is the man. When I was giving a, I was giving a lecture uh, on intelligence and um, some spotty, feckless youth who claimed he was a, a graduate student stood up, opens this book by Nigel West and says, Mr. West says here, what do you think of that? No, listen, some of them were amateurs, weren't they? They weren't all sort of heavily trained people. Indeed, I think you could argue that some of the best spies in history were self-recruited, and a good example, I think, would have been Garbo, who was the spy who enabled the D-Day landings to be such a success that he almost single-handedly persuaded the Germans that the Normandy invasions were just a diversionary feint and the real landings were going to take place in the Pas de Calais two weeks later. I mean, that was one of the defining moments, surely, of the history of the 20th century. Yeah, I, I, I have to tell you, the, the bit I was talking about at the time uh, and such, it was about Greville Wynne, who I always rather admired as a, a businessman who really got caught up in the whole thing in a very dangerous way. Yes, poor old Greville, I'm afraid that um, he was a little bit of a fantasist. And, and you're right, I think his heart was originally in the right place. But he then became a fabricator. And I'm afraid he wrote he wrote one book that was pretty good, but his second book, The Man from Odessa, I'm curious that I should be here right now, mm-hmm. uh, was was total fiction. Uh, and uh, he, he was somebody who really let his imagination run away with him. Sometimes the intelligence services fall victim to people who are a little bit too enthusiastic. Right, right. <laughs> Nigel West, thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm not recommended Triple X, but it's actually quite a good read. Um, yeah, you have to I say that, it was don't a you? Beer. There was, there was a, like a beer. There was a, it's a form of safety glass. No. There was a piece in the paper last week arguing that mm. the British are the best spies and the best is intelligence, because uh, English culture especially uh, is based on dissembling. You never reveal what you think. Uh, you never say what you think. Uh, and you act as if uh, you, you're somebody else and so on. And this is marvellous, a marvellous cover uh, well, also for the f- spy. Also the fact that we have the class system. I'm sure that's Triple X is part of that. Uh, Kim Philby certainly was, if he hadn't been you know, of the right class the grotesque spying that he was doing, being in charge of counter-terrorism uh, against the Russians, as I said, would have been spotted. But it was one of our chaps. The you know, the they don't do thing, that sort of thing. The interesting yeah. thing about the material that Stalin got from the Magnificent Five in the 1930s, he basically didn't believe it. <laughs> it was too for, good, for wasn't it? Reason, yeah. It was far too good. Yeah. He just could not believe that uh, Whitehall was so inept mm. that somebody could actually cream off this stuff and send it to Moscow. Come on, tell me something. That mm-hmm. We started on that. I'm not sure that, um, that Nigel actually got, got, got it going properly. Why is it that um, these guys like Philby, Burgess, McLean, well, why is it that we, the, these, these, these guys actually sent people to their deaths and were traitors, why is it that the British public think 
Yeah. Well, they've been romanticised well, in fiction. Romantic. They, they, they live an exciting life, uh, we think. <coughs> and uh, w the fact they've sent people to their deaths is they did it for what they thought was ideologically the right reason. They were on the left at the time when fascism was the enemy. But, you see, if you take somebody, for example, Anthony Blunt, who, oh. was, the, who was the keeper or of, of the... Of the curator Queen's of the Queen's mm. pictures. Mm. The Queen knew this guy had been a spy. Mm. And yet, she the palace... Well, she the, kept him on. She kept him on. Now, mm. how can we explain that? It, uh, it has something to do with the establishment uh, that if you reveal, if you and then make a big thing of the fact that Philby... These are all, if you like, the gilded youth. They came from the top drawer of society, many of them from public schools. If you then say that they... All from public schools. That they all betrayed yeah. Britain, betrayed the working class, betrayed the middle class, and so on. What does that say about the establishment, and so on? Uh, and the establishment has an extraordinary ability to gloss over things like this, because Philby sent a lot of agents in Albania mm. to mm. their deaths. Mm. Uh, and they should have worked out they should have actually worked out and boasted about it uh, when he was in Moscow when he was met by journalists from the Sunday Times yeah. but listen I remember yeah. that SIS the MI6 mm. knew about Philby they knew about Anthony Blunt and they knew about uh, John Cairncross mm. they knew about it and yet it's not just society generally thinking well you know they're good, good, good old lads the intelligence people who were fighting mm. Counterintelligence knew about it and did nothing about them. Well, I think that was a unique period. We're not going to find that so much now as one thing we've talked about the, the class system and the elitism and such like. Two, we're fighting a different type of war. Don't forget that all came up at a certain period and there were these recruiters in the universities, particularly mm. Oxford and Cambridge, dons who were spotting, who were reporting. Now they're all dying out now. Uh, they're not, they're not all dying out. Well, some you know are still in their 80s probably. Look, they but advertise not, in the mm. economists if you yes. want to join the SAS or MI5. Right. I mean, you don't need somebody tapping on, your, on the shoulder. Listen, I was on. I had a look at the website, right? Can I just quote you some stuff and see whether you, you get a job? It says here. Hmm. Yeah, seriously. We might office. already have one. We rely heavily on the work of members of the language unit. Mm -hmm. um, they want to go to Millwall and watch them. So, <laughs> an in depth knowledge and understanding of a variety of communities, cultures, and languages isn't just an advantage, it can be absolutely critical. I think we go along with that. At present, we're very keen to speak to people who speak Arabic, Somali, Sileti with Bengali, Sarani, Kurdi, Pashto, um, African languages, Russian or Churchill. Now, Martin, at one time, mm. Russian would have been number one. But all those languages start to begin to tell us that the, the task of SIS and uh, five are quite different than they were 20 years ago. It all changed in 1979 with the Iranian Revolution and the Ayatollah. Communism, uh, those who were perceptive, could see the communism was on it gradually winding down and that Moscow really wanted a rapprochement with America and they didn't want to fight America and so on. Uh, th those who had eyes to see could see that. Uh, but very few perceived that uh, the future would in fact be... Uh, uh, Islamic fundamentalism, a real challenge, an ideological challenge, and also a challenge between cultures, uh, Iran, the Middle East, and so on, and the West. Very few saw that, and now gradually, 
when, and that's common sense now and they'd all look at that and then uh, say right uh, Arabic all these languages are important and you have to go into Algeria you have to talk to mm. the uh, 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 the minorities and so on to see what's going on Claire well, the tricky thing now is to get people who are fluent speakers of those languages. You're going to have to recruit amongst minority communities uh, within the UK. And I know there's, that's problematic in terms of, you know, whether people are actually seen to be as reliable as, in fact, as has been pointed Vetting out. Vetting becomes a headache. These, well, mm. these Oxbridge characters weren't reliable, as we've, as we've just discussed. Mm. So, I mean, what makes people reliable agents for you and who are not going to turn and all the rest of it? But, I mean, you could argue that previously mm. this generation, they trained up to speak sufficiently fluent. Russian that they could pass themselves off. I speak French and Spanish, and mm. I'm sure with intensive training, I, you know, I often mm. get mistaken. I say this in all modesty for, for being you do French. You else? When <laughs> I'm often mistaken, but people take me for being French when I speak French. Now, physically, I can get away with that, but I could not march around Somaliland or anywhere else like that and get away with it. So I think this is, this is where it's problematic, and of course, unless the way we deal with the difficulties within our own minority communities in terms of blanket accusations of them all being linked potentially to jihadism means this is very difficult. Martin? You have the official language. For instance, the Spanish uh, you remember the, uh, the Madrid bombings what, about four years ago, six years ago? Mm. Uh, the um, secret police or the uh, Spanish intelligence taped all the conversations uh, all coming from Morocco because they, they knew what was going on. But they threw them away because nobody could decipher the dialects. And therefore, those who were uh, communicating, communicated in dialect, in Arabic dialect, mm. And this defeated the Spanish. So therefore, even if you do speak fluent Arabic, you may be defeated by... They should have uh, asked their friends in Morocco to translate for them. All right. <clears throat> All right, we're moving on. But I have to tell you one thing, Claire. The advertisement on mm. the website says we'd be particularly interested to hear from women. Yes, but no more honey pots. Did you read that? You're not, you're not allowed <laughs> honey to actually, traps. Honey traps, that's right. Well, honey, lots of pots, but no <laughs> traps. Yeah. OK, listen, no, I want to tell enough. you about my morning, OK? I'll tell you about my honey trap. I'm then. not interested in your honey <laughs> trap. I'll tell you about my so morning. You know, far too much of it. I was in a very grumpy mood this morning. Shirts not back from the laundry, wife not back from the pub, and Portsmouth FC not back from anywhere. Usual Arcacia Avenue breakfast time. Well, I stopped to listen to the BBC's Today programme, playing an edited recording of Major Richard Stratfield's diary. Who's he? Major Stratfield commands eight company, four rifles, and today, as we speak today, eight company leaves or has left the UK for the upper Sangin Valley. On the Today Praying in the morning, they, they played his diary, or so we thought. We heard him talking about his fears and hoping he would stay alive to take his son to the first day of the Ashes Test at Lord's. It was morbid, almost defeatist, totally demoralising. So I checked the full version. It's just the opposite. He was talking about all about training, confidence objectives. What the Today programme had done was to snip out the misery memoir extract. This is an amazing story, isn't it, Chris Walker? Because the first and foremost, the families would have been listening to it. Families that are from now onwards are waiting to hear mm. of their safety. Second thing, Taliban listen to it and say, oh, it's great. You know, Major St- uh, you know, Stretfield's a bit frightened of this whole gig. Yes, I mean, I think the classic th- thing is that it was tabloid journalism being practiced On the Today by the program? BBC. Yes, what they did was they got a fairly sort of or- not ordinary but interesting memoir and said, hey, we've got to get the sexy bits out of this. And they snipped it and so they just gave the most sensational. I mean, the only saving grace is that it wasn't his only diary. He's now going to go on mm. making this diary for the next six months. But also, I mean, BFBS has been uh, playing 
going earlier or going over earlier the full diary, and that's mm-hmm. fine. But that's a limited, you know, audience. I mean, yeah. today, today program people say, you know, the guy. It's the atmosphere that it creates. Why is this? Well, I, I said it before that, that, you know, everyone is intent on spinning something. You know, it's mm. almost as if the media now have been infected rather than the other way around by the politicians um, putting a spin, whatever they say they can they can argue for, they can argue against using the same language. And I'm afraid we're looking for, as you say, the sexy bits rather than the reality. Mm. Martin, bad news is good news. Bad news is good news. They're looking for Yeah, but that. this was supposed to be helpful. They were doing this as, a, as well, an interesting... Well, it wasn't, but that's yeah. the today, President. That's not particularly helpful to anybody in authority, is it i think what it did was it did give a reality of soldiering okay right uh reality is that we have to go that's it for this week wish the today hey listen listen to the day uh listen to this whole thing on bfps if you can or read it on the, the full blog on the today program it's worth reading that's it for this week my thanks to claire spencer chris walker martin mccauley we'll be back mary she's in the hut